This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. So the time has actually just gone squarely 11.11. It's the synchronicity I like. It's the balance that we need to establish a little bit of equilibrium. And I think that's what foreign relations is all about. It's about establishing balance where we can all live and let live with a common set of values that binds us all but underpinned by each nation's right to sovereignty. Um, it's a broad, broad field, international relations, something like a kaleidoscope, you know, consisting of two or more reflecting surfaces, different but interrelated, complementing each other. And what do I mean by this? Well, there are broad pillars to foreign policy, any country's foreign policy. There's the security and peace aspect. Then there's the aspect of advancing development, shared prosperity. Then there's the question of creating polarities, multiple polarities. You can't live in a world that respects each nation's sovereignty, but there's always one domineering party. It's meant to be a shared space of equals in pursuance of mutual interests, but we know that it doesn't quite work like that. There's real politic, even in this day and era where, you know, the bigger, larger economies see themselves as the natural police of the global order and are given the latitude to do so. But at times, and this is what we've definitely seen with issues around Israel and Hamas and Gaza, is that bigger, richer, more powerful doesn't always mean more ethical, more moral um, more conscientious. And sometimes it will take middle-income countries, smaller countries, to remind the world what the basic parameters of human decency ought to be. And it seems to me that's the stance South Africa took by bringing a case forward to the International Court of Justice, different to the International Criminal Court. They, it can only be state on state. But South Africa has also called for the ICC to get involved in some of these conflicts where you have non-state actors, but holding leaders of militia and warlords uh, and individual aggressors uh, responsible for their actions. But it's not always about war and peace. It's also about soft power, culture, sharing norms and standards in a creative way, the power of Amapiano, the power of movies, the power of theatre, the power of AFCON in bringing nations together. That's also diplomacy. And so in this conversation, our view of the nation is South Africa's growing profile in the international world from BRICS to G20, yes, to the ICJ, to Hollywood, to music, to everything that makes the world more dynamic and diverse. And it is our singular pleasure to welcome South Africa's honest, uh, Honourable Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. And yes, regarded as one of the most honest people <laughs> amongst us, uh, Dr. Naledi Pando. Good morning, ma'am. Uh, good morning, Lerato. What a fantastic uh, overview you've given as an introduction. I wish my 
uh, introductory orientation had been led by you on this subject. <laughs> Morning to you and all the listeners of Power FM. Oh, thank you so much for coming through. So let's just start off with what we're calling or seeing as a revival of the South African position in international affairs. And I'm not even sure if it's fair, you know, is, is that South Africa, did we go through a lull? Were we quiet? And then suddenly we found fire in our belly. But something seems to be happening. And what is that something? Well, um, I I really don't uh, think that it's uh, correct to say it's a revival because uh, we have not been sleeping on the human rights job. It's just that we don't uh, always pay attention to uh, the halls in which uh, these matters are discussed. Mm. Uh, South Africa was very fortunate in 2022 to be elected once more to the Human Rights Council. And there is robust uh, uh, deliberation there on uh, the state of human rights in the world and also looking at uh, a range of issues uh, that should be addressed. Uh, There are other fora, such as uh, the forum where we discuss uh, uh, nuclear uh, uh, arms and uh, their presence and danger to the world, where we look at the Non-Proliferation Treaty, Uh, South Africa is uh, a member of the treaty, so uh, a state signatory. Um, So there are many, many uh, areas in which Mm. the matters uh, of human rights are deliberated upon, and South Africa, I think, plays a very active role. And uh, interestingly enough, is respected Mm. by many countries who occupy different political ideologies uh, for Uh, the role that we play uh, in this regard. Linked to it, of course, yesterday being the anniversary of the release of uh, former president, our icon, uh, Nelson Mandela. Linked to all of this is the manner in which we uh, concluded our own struggle for freedom uh, and embraced uh, democratic and constitutional values. Okay, and also the fact that we've got a lot of South African luminaries involved in the human rights uh, establishment, whether it's, uh, you know, Judge Navi Pillay in the past, the recent appointment of Judge Diretladi to the uh-huh. ICJ. So in many different ways, we see South Africans either officially linked to Durko or in their different uh, fields of, of expertise playing a significant role in the world. And um, that also gives impetus to South Africa being re-elected to the Human Rights Council in 2022. But be that as it may, Minister, what was it about the Israel-Hamas issue that made this a type of watershed moment or, to use a South African term, a Rubicon moment in modern-day foreign relations? What really made this the real moment of truth on how we value human rights and international law? Um, I, I think if I were to try and, and, and uh, analyze that this moment, uh, we were all horrified at the Hamas attack uh, on Israeli uh, uh, citizens and the uh, capturing uh, of Israelis as hostages. But uh, we've been uh, equally, if not more, horrified at the response by the Israeli government and its uh, defense force uh, in its uh, attack on uh, innocent uh, Palestinian civilians and the massive destruction 
uh, of property, denial of basic uh, human uh, needs, and other actions which I think have the world absolutely shocked and horrified. So um, we were acting uh, in response to that horror and felt that uh, much of our initial response was to observe almost for 40 days uh, what had been uh, going on uh, in Gaza and which then proceeded to other areas uh, uh, of the Palestinian uh, occupied territories. And in discussion, we felt we, we could no longer, as South Africa, be silent uh, because you might recall when we first uh, achieved our democracy in the course of our first democratic election, in that very year, we had the horror of Rwanda, the Rwandan yeah. genocide. Yeah. And we felt we can't watch uh, uh, this tragedy that is unfolding uh, yeah. in Palestine and say and do nothing. Yeah. We also felt there are multilateral institutions whose remit is to uh, seek to address these matters and who as bodies uh, uh, that have been approved by the world community uh, would enjoy greater respect than the lone voice uh, of South Africa. Hence our approach to the International Court of Justice on the Genocide Convention, uh, an old established uh, convention uh, that many, many countries are state parties to. I'm glad you're reminding us of that moment between the months of April and July 1994. As South Africa was entering their first democratic elections, uh, people in Rwanda were living through one of the worst uh, nightmares of the country's uh, post-colonial history, a genocide. But I remember that moment significantly because the word genocide was very controversial in terms of state actors not even wanting to use it, not the United States, not France, even the United Nations was very, very apprehensive about using the word genocide because if it was accepted to be a genocide, which eventually it was, it would have compelled the international community to respond more strongly uh, and even in terms of setting boots on the ground, a war that um, the world wasn't ready to enter into. And I think a similar thing is happening here is that it's not so much the condemnation per se of the Israeli defense force or even the condemnation of Hamas's belligerent actions. It's the use of the word genocide that is getting um, countries, especially of the West, very unsettled. Why is that? Well, I think uh, I want to say uh, that uh, with respect to Rwanda, uh, you didn't have a government acting against uh, those who became victims uh, in the killings uh, uh, that you know, we all saw mm-hmm. in Rwanda. In the case of Palestine, a state party, which is also, by the way, a signatory mm-hmm. to the Genocide Convention, is the one uh, that is carrying out uh, uh, the genocide, uh, genocidal acts uh, that we have referred to the ICJ. The uh, convention refers to state parties. It does not refer to non-state actors mm-hmm. because really uh, genocide has, in a sense, a scale that is far beyond 
uh, an action that a non-state party might be able uh, to execute. Mm -hmm. So um, the reason we have made the referral is that we're seeing a state party acting in a way that is described as genocidal in the appropriate clauses of the Genocide Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Okay. And I think this is an important distinction, is that the International Court of Justice arbitrates the behavior of nation states, which are signatory Uh to some of these Geneva Conventions. And the ICC was explained to us as the body that can look at militia warlords, individual actions. Uh And we should remember that. And this is why Hamas can't be brought to the ICJ, because Hamas is an organization. It's not a nation state representative. And those are some of the technicalities of international law that we also have to observe. But be that as it may, the court has said it recognizes the prima facie uh, evidence that has been presented by South African, uh, the South African case, that on the surface, Looking at the situation as it is, there seems to be reasonable um, conditions to believe that what is happening on the ground in Gaza is tantamount to actions that will lead to the extermination of a Palestinian people genocide. But obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done to prove that conclusively. Mm. What they did not do is call for a ceasefire. It's something that you have expressed a lot of disappointment in because in order to quell the suffering the bombs need to stop raining over Gaza. But the ICJ did not rule that. So what are then the options, the next steps for uh, South Africa? Because if you recognize there could be a genocide, even though not absolutely conclusive, does it now compel Israel to do something? Does it bolster your case to the Security Council of the United Nations? What then happens to stop the actual conflict and facilitate humanitarian aid flows? Well, um, you would have seen, um, following the ICJ ruling, that the Security Council did meet and that there were uh, members of the Security Council uh, that were not fully supportive of the review, uh, of the provincial measures, rather, provisional Mm -hmm. measures that had been set out and uh, uh, ruled on by the ICJ. Uh, All of them in that meeting... uh, indicated support for uh, humanitarian aid being allowed in, and they've said this more than once. Uh, Many are not for ceasefire, uh, particularly the United States of America. Um, But I think uh, the response really has been uh, one of welcoming the testing by South Africa of the ICJ on the convention. That's very important. Um, There were many who said, you know, uh, the case is, you know, something they they don't support. Actually, some passed us as ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But I think given that all leaders in the global community have a a responsibility to urge respect for bodies, of the United Nations, particularly those that are uphold mm-hmm. a human rights, I think comments have now been uh, far more judicious mm-hmm. and less uh, uh, critical uh, of, of okay. South Africa. With- and the, uh, the court said South Africa has set out 
a plausible case. Yeah. Uh, and that that I think was important. While I have said, uh, you know, I, I would have uh, really welcomed use of the word uh, uh, cessation, mm-hmm. uh, which I saw the court was very careful to avoid using. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that the measures uh, that they have ruled upon would require cessation in order to be executed. Okay. Uh, be it uh, long-term or temporary, but they would require ceasefire. So all indications from the State of Israel um, is that for them, the end game is the total destruction of Hamas as a militia fighting force, and they don't support the idea of a ceasefire until they believe that there isn't an existential threat to the state of Israel. So for all intents and purposes, Israel says, we see the ruling, we're not going to abide. And this then raises the question, what powers do some of these UN bodies have? You have an international court of justice, but even signatories to the various conventions around war don't have to abide with the ruling of that ICJ. Naruto, mm. <laughs> why are you asking such difficult questions? Because <laughs> we just want to know. It's happening right before well, our eyes, and we're thinking, um, okay, all this effort, was it worth it? Well, well, I think the effort was certainly worth it. South Africa has put the matter uh, on the global map. Uh, several countries are extremely concerned. They share our concern, mm-hmm. but we're not bold enough uh, uh, to uh, actually approach the ICJ. We did. Yeah. We are getting indications of support. We've just had a submission of uh, their legal uh, uh, papers by Nicaragua, mm-hmm. who will join us. There are one or two other countries that have indicated, and I suspect the number may grow. But also... Uh, Israel continues uh, to issue threats. You would see that uh, when Palestinians are told they must move to a particular part uh, of the the Palestinian territory, they then are bombarded there or Mm -hmm. bombarded Mm -hmm. as they move. Mm -hmm. We now have a threat on Mm Rafah, which is really a huge concern. And I think all the world is now sitting up and is extremely, extremely concerned at the impunity. And what it shows mm-hmm. is that essentially there is a genocidal intent. This is very, very clear. So the next step, we believe, is that the Security Council should call an urgent meeting and should convene and discuss the matter of peace enforcement. All right. So there's quite a few things going on, at least uh, encouraging that Egypt says it's willing to open the Rafah crossing without any conditions and just allow Palestinians to pass through into safer ground in Egypt. But there is another view, Minister, and we had a listener, Brian, calling in earlier and said, when you speak to the minister, ask her this. If we are saying Israel's bombs are raining on refugee camps, schools, nursery schools, um, 10,000 children have been caught in the crossfire. It's because Hamas builds um, its uh, tunnels under civilian outposts. Um, So if Israel has to defend itself and target Hamas outposts, those invariably will be in civilian enclaves like neighborhoods, like refugee camps, like schools. And Hamas also has to be held accountable for how this war has played out in Gaza. But over and above that, can we not forget that on the 7th of October, it was the aggression of Hamas that prompted this, and not just Hamas's actions on the 
7th of October. But bellicose language from Hamas with its allies, Hezbollah and the state of Iran that don't even recognize the right of Israel to exist. Why do we constantly talk about this conflict as um, something that is impacting the lives, the dignity of Palestinian people without recognizing the inherent right of Israel to exist. What's your response to that? Firstly, um, I believe that uh, it's very important uh, for uh, you uh, who have the power of the media to always remind us as South Africans that Palestine is occupied. This is something we neglect to refer to. And uh, your uh, listener uh, uh, would be aware, the gentleman who uh, called in, that in the United Nations Charter, the matter of occupation is dealt with. And that indicates in the UN Charter that an occupying state has an obligation to protect the occupied. Very important point that we often don't refer to. Why do organizations such as Hamas exist? It is due to the oppression of the people of Palestine who do not enjoy freedom, democracy, human rights. Uh, These are things that South Africans prize hugely. And we don't prize them just for ourselves. We prize them for all people. So we should not forget that matter of occupation, nor oppression of Palestinian people. They are in a struggle for freedom. And it's important we mention that. Referring to these things does not mean we support the atrocities committed by Hamas. In our referral to the ICC, we ask them to investigate all war crimes whichever party they are committed by. And that is extremely important. But I wish to deal with another matter that you say the gentleman mentioned. This uh, uh, notion that uh, Hamas uh, doesn't uh, believe Israel should exist. Mm -hmm. There was such a clause, I understand, in the Constitution that initially established Hamas. They apparently removed that clause and now do not have such a view as part of their documents of uh, existence. So uh, I think that one has been answered by them removing uh, such negative references to uh, Israel. Uh, Finally, I think uh, it is also vital uh, to say that the concern must always be of all about all who are affected. At the moment, it is Palestinian children, women, old men, and men who are being killed. At the moment, the humiliation is being uh, visited upon those people. And we as South Africans cannot and will not be silent when we see uh, such conduct. Whoever it is committed against, be it Israeli people, all Palestinian people. Today, at the moment, now, the victims are Palestinians. And their voice has to be from ourselves, 
because they really don't have a voice at present. We're in conversation with Dr. Naledi Pando, South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation, obviously talking about a serious issue of international justice, morality and international law, a case brought forward by South Africa against Israel concerning um, the continued uh, war in Gaza, uh, the situation very tense and uh, many Palestinian people being forced to move closer and closer to the Egyptian border of Rafah, but making it easier, um, as it's reported, to then rain down bombs over uh, a concentration of people, which again reiterates this idea that it looks like uh, an orchestrated attack against an ethnic group of people, which is then a genocide. But be that as may, South Africa says this is an issue about giving equal value to all lives, Israeli and Palestinian, black and white, people of the global north or the so-called global south, a world where we all belong. we we'll continue in a moment. Getting you what you need to know. Power Talk, weekdays 9 a.m. to noon on Power 98.7. All right. Thank you very much to the news teams and the updates. Uh, We're having a conversation, a view of the nation, as we do on Mondays. And today it's really a view of South Africa and the world. South Africa reminding the world of the parameters of morality, law and decency. And South Africa expanding uh, relationships in the world. Foreign affairs is very much an extension of the national priorities of a country because it's by building relations with other countries that either you articulate a case for more investments in the country. So there's a synergy between trade uh, and foreign relations. Certainly, you help to foster peace in a world increasingly fraught by fascism, nationalism, intolerance and greed. And... um, As new technologies emerge and you realize that 20 years ago, big companies were big manufacturing, industrial companies. Today, it's big tech. You really want to be in a knowledge sharing economy so that you can also help the nation elevate in terms of the composition of how it does things. So foreign relations becomes an important pillar of extending the identity and um, helping the country realize more of its aspirations. But whilst we may talk about that, We've really seen foreign affairs come front and center because of the situation in Israel, between Israel and uh, uh, Hamas in Gaza, and also last year um, between Ukraine and Russia as well. And South Africa found itself front and center in a lot of those conversations, at times controversially uh, and at the moment very much ethically. We're in conversation with the Honorable Minister of International Relations and Cooperation. I will say this, Dr. Naledi Pandor, that despite all the um, mixed messages, recriminations, criticism, support, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's either you love South Africa right now, you don't love South Africa right now, it's, you know, it's right down the middle. The issue is this, we are seeing a shifting of the proverbial needle. Definitely. We are seeing more and more people asking the questions that you've been raising. Mm. Whose lives matter? Do we diminish the value of some lives because they are black and brown over other lives? Do we uh, respect all people's rights to human rights as is enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? How do we value children? How do we value women? All of those issues. And to that end, we're seeing the United States Secretary of State, 
uh, on a tour, it appears, of the Gulf states and certainly of Europe, saying that they're trying to broker a ceasefire, meeting with the negotiators uh, from Qatar, the Saudis and allies of Hamas, as well as bringing some of the proposals to Israel, hoping to broker a ceasefire. We don't know if they'll succeed. And we've also seen in the last week um, uh, President Joe Biden uh, talking about an enactment of sanctions against Israeli settlers who are encroaching on Palestinian territories. And to that end, even uh, saying that they're ready to impose sanctions on four key uh, Israeli uh, individuals, David Chai Chazdai, Ainen Tanjil, Yinon Levy and Shalom Zikerman, uh, who are all accused of assaulting and intimidating Palestinians. It's not nearly enough, but it's something. Um, indeed, uh, I would agree uh, that it is uh, uh, something that gives us hope uh, because uh, you would recall uh, uh, that I've often complained about uh, a problem identified, which is what I'd call double standards mm-hmm. in global affairs, where there was always this expectation uh, that uh, Africans must hold up human rights instruments. They're not doing so sufficiently. And we would often attend international meetings and be lectured on uh, our records on human rights Mm -hmm. and democracy. Mm -hmm. Um, Now uh, we are able to take a measure as to whether those developed uh, parts of the world that lectured us in this way, are they themselves practicing Mm -hmm. uh, that which they were, you know, really cajoling, encouraging, arguing uh, that we should adopt. So it's a test to all of us um, to ensure there's respect for human rights, for human dignity and for life. And I've been uh, feeling a little, little uh, uh, encouraged by the more recent noises. But until someone stops arms, uh, transfers, funding, um, I I will not uh, really be able to stop arguing uh, for peace and cessation of hostilities. I'm also, uh, while we would welcome the efforts at protection that Egypt has indicated, yes. that effort must not give rise to the intent to uh, remove Palestinian people from land which could form part of their state. Mm-hmm. So here are the criticisms now, and they're not necessarily coming from the West. One of the minister is congruence and consistency. That's what I'm going to call it. So you also mentioned that South Africa has raised some of these issues with the International Criminal Court to say, even on the Hamas side, where you find atrocities, you need to uh, draw up a case and hold people accountable. Even individuals within the Likud party within the Israeli state, where it's not the instructions of the government, but instructions of certain leaders within the military hold them accountable. And yet, when the ICC issued a warrant, albeit a procedurally flawed warrant, against uh, President Vladimir Putin for what are believed to be his personal instructions in how Russian soldiers have conducted themselves in Ukraine, South Africa is said to have done the maximum to find many loopholes to avoid meeting the demands of that warrant, which would have required that South Africa arrest President Putin if he attended the BRICS summit in South Africa. So without going into the rigmarole of legally how you issue a warrant, where it needed to go, how it goes, the simple issue is that if you believe 
all parties in the Israel-Hamas situation must be held accountable by the ICJ, the ICC. Why shouldn't the same apply when it comes to a strong ally like Russia? Uh, we've uh, never, I, there's not one statement you'd find where I uh, made the statements uh, you indicate now, mm. uh, nor going around an arrest warrant. Uh, had President come, Putin come here, mm. we in fact, in a visit to Moscow and uh, following our visit to Ukraine, indicated to him by law and uh, following the ruling uh, of the High Court in South Africa on the al-Bashir matter, mm. should he come here, we would have to arrest him be in terms of our law. This is what we communicated. So I don't know okay. where the view uh, comes from, well, uh, I, I that think... we, uh, we vacillated and so on. Yeah, I like that word. It's a better word, vacillated. It really came across as such, is that, you know what, yeah, a lot of that know, shuttling about was about... Lerato, uh, when you practice diplomacy... You don't do it in the full, uh, you know, light uh, of public uh, view because uh, you are engaging with parties sometimes to take an action that might be fundamentally opposed in their view to their national interest. Mm. So you don't go around and say, oh, yesterday I met so-and-so and and he said this (laughs) and I met that one. It's not that's not how diplomacy works. We will see the result uh, uh, when a matter Okay. is in the public domain. So the fact that President Putin didn't attend break was an important testimony okay. uh, uh, to our own uh, uh, work. So, and, and so clarity know, on that one, Minister. conducted in that way. Okay, and so clarity on that matter. It's not that, you know, a lot of the back and forth meetings, going to Moscow back, phone calls, it was not you trying to say, please don't come, please don't put us in that situation. You communicated to Russia to say, if you do come, we have this yeah. legal obligation. We, we will meet uh, that. Ramaphosa okay. and Chaos Brick sent the invitation as per normal. Okay. And it was their decision uh, not okay. to attend. We did inform them, as I say, of the legal obligation South Africa has given the ICC warrant. Okay. We had to be upfront on that. Um, and, uh, you know, okay. uh, they decided that he would not attend. Okay, because they knew what would follow, what you would have legally to do. Well, the Similar. difficulties that would result. I think uh, yeah. it was going to be a real challenge yeah. uh, to arrest, you know, the leader yeah. president of Russia. Yeah. Uh, but we did uh, indicate okay. so you uh, what our law uh, would okay. require. Okay. Similarly, another criticism is it is quite laudable what South Africa has done and really holding up a mirror to the world of what our common shared values would be. Laudable, Nobody's going to in any way criticize what's happened, certainly not from the South African side. There's been a lot of support for the ICJ case. But people have said, could we see similar energy, please, South Africa, when it comes to issues around the DRC? It's still being reported that uh, there are a lot of atrocities in Eastern Congo, that there is a mobilization of militia of the M23 in Eastern Congo, that it's a flashpoint, it's volatile. We know the UN is already scaling down its mission. But if you count the number of deaths between 2006 and now, 12 million people have lost their lives in the DRC. And while South Africa did support the global and all-inclusive peace accord that led to a transition to some kind of democracy in the DRC, it hasn't ended the conflict. And the same issues that South Africa has taken to the ICJ are pervasive 
in eastern Congo, could we see more more noise coming from countries like South Africa and indeed countries in the region concerning the DRC, concerning Sudan right now, concerning Ethiopia? Well, uh, we've always been vocal on those issues. And as you know, our men and women have been on the ground uh, in the, the eastern DRC, in the Force Intervention Brigade. Uh, that was a number of SADC countries, including South Africa, working closely uh, with MONUSCO, the UN mm-hmm. uh, uh, mission. Uh, there's been a, a drawdown. Uh, MONUSCO uh, is exiting mm-hmm. at the request of the DRC uh, government because they felt um, that you know the peace mission essentially uh, was not able to offer local communities the protection necessary given the violent actions of this uh, uh, group. Mm-hmm. Hence, the request uh, to SADC that uh, we mobilize and deploy a mission to the DRC following the work that was done uh, in uh, Mozambique, uh, in northern uh, Mozambique, yes. in Cabo Delgado. Mm-hmm. Uh, the decision to deploy a force was taken, I announced uh, uh, publicly last year. Uh, the deployment uh, was delayed uh, somewhat uh, because of uh, DRC government's focus primarily on the election preparation mm-hmm. for December. We've begun uh, uh, deploying those SADC countries that have agreed from end of December, and this is underway. Mm-hmm. So we're doing what we can, uh, but you also would be aware that uh, in the measures we've had to take in South Africa to reduce uh, uh, public funding, one of the departments that's been very hard hit is the uh, Department of Defense. And uh, it's difficult to fight if you don't have the right equipment. So we must ensure uh, with the deployment to the DRC that appropriate support is given to our men and women on the ground so that they can fire back and fire back effectively. Okay, what do you think some of the challenges of pan-African diplomacy are? And this is the standard question that's often asked is, you know, yes, you've got regional organizations, ECOWAS, SADC, EGAD, uh, dealing with regional uh, contexts of peace and security. But then you have the African Union as the overarching body. But even within the African Union context, you still need countries like South Africa, the Nigerias, hegemons, to step in and overextend themselves. And in as much as it's ethically, morally, the right thing to do, it's also unfair. It's asking countries like South Africa to take on more than what they actually can do. So how do we address some of the tensions uh, manifest in Africa, particularly in countries like the Sahel? We've seen three unconstitutional changes of government, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger. We continue to see flashpoints. As I've said, uh, northern Ethiopia, Sudan continued on the uh, DRC side. Um, Zimbabwe has had elections, but people do believe that in a way it it's, I don't know what the word is, it's not volatile, but it is a situation that keeps spilling over into the rest of the subregion and needs mm. a decisive intervention. Mm. Well, firstly, uh, I think that if you have the ability to be big, you shouldn't lack confidence to be big. That's very important. Uh, Imagine in the EU, if Germany, France, and the larger economies, Italy, uh, uh, just decided to play small, 
and not play an effective leadership role. Uh, it would be a disaster for the European Union. Uh, on the African continent, the sentiment uh, is not toward uh, agreeing that there should be you know, big countries. We all think we should be the same. And when you uh, sometimes attempt to be of assistance, uh, there is a sort of a reaction that's not totally welcoming uh, of such. So uh, I do think we need to have a change of attitude and approach on the continent. I also believe that uh, the uh, practice, uh, which is almost policy, of the African Union of what they call subsidiarity, which means when there are uh, difficulties in a region, it is the regional uh, economic communities that must uh, have primary responsibility for addressing the particular problem. I think where uh, the uh, problem is very large and impacts negatively, the AU should take up a stronger role. And it's something I'm going to argue again when we're at the Executive Council uh, this week. I do think sometimes we leave it all up uh, to the regions, and at times the regions don't have the wherewithal uh, to address very big problems. So I think we need to have an approach on the continent that says working together we can solve our problems, and we shouldn't just leave it to a regional uh, body without adequate support from the AU or from the rest of us. So it's a step change uh, that, from my observation, uh, is critically necessary. But uh, it will take time, I think, to to get agreement. But uh, we'll we'll get there. We'll work on it. All right. Minister, I want us to move beyond peace and security issues. And let's talk about opportunity and a word that is coming up increasingly, multi uh, polarity, a multipolar world. Okay, what we mean by that? Um, which are the new emerging uh, blocks and spheres of influence, and in what areas? As well, and I think this speaks to, you know, this underlying issue of the evolution of a new world order. We've seen it emerging in the last two decades, but I guess even more so now with the expansion of BRICS, with the emergence of BRICS, uh, and with countries like China becoming uh, these colossal uh, economies in the world, the second largest economy in the world, growth in India, the fifth largest economy in the world, the innovations coming out of Australia, Singapore, uh, Korea. It's changing the face of the world. And as that happens, how does international relations change as well? Well, I think what happens, hopefully, is that you develop a multipolarity with a, diff- a, a different orientation uh, than we've had up to this time. And that is, it's not a multipolarity where you wish to be dominant. I've uh, personally never heard Chinese leaders saying, I want you to do A, B, and C. Mm. They say, we would like you to cooperate with us. What are your interests? or areas in which you wish have cooperation, and we have discussions uh, on that. So I think uh, if we are to have these uh, points of powerful goals, let's hope uh, that the values and principles they espouse are principles of, ex- 
of inclusion rather than uh, dominance. Once you believe uh, that the economic power you have means you've got huge moral authority, Mm. can pronounce on anything, and what you pronounce is the perfect view in the world, Mm. um, you just are causing great difficulty for us. Uh, This is why, as the BRICS Forum, we espouse in very general terms on our posture with respect to the United Nations as the premier global body and our call for its reform. Uh, We do not see ourselves as the sole actor in the United Nations, be it Security Council or General Assembly. So I think, uh, uh, Lirato, really, the answer is we hope that these powerful uh, uh, forces will have a different ethos uh, uh, and uh, ethics mm. as they come into greater uh, uh, global or international uh, mm. power. And is it a case of the more the world changes, the more it stays the same? I've heard critics say, even with the expansion of BRICS, even with new sort of trade and economic alliances, all that it is is the new formations are simply a replication of existing systems of engagement. It's a BRICS bank starts to model a World Bank, for instance. You know, uh, uh, a BRICS formation. (laughs) You know, so those are some of the criticisms is how do you really change the ethos, the functioning, the way in which people in the world move, engage, relate? I think you work at it. I mean, uh, with BRICS, we've decided uh, that as a first step, we will focus on infrastructure. And we've done so uh, quite successfully. And then we said we'll look at expansion, and we are doing so. We began as five. We are now eight. I anticipate two or three more countries this year and growing into next year. And the focus will be development. Uh, it will be key uh, sectors that support uh, inclusive economic growth. It's a different uh, orientation. Uh, it would have been difficult uh, to go uh, immediately to the World Bank and say, help us with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're mm-hmm. experiencing costs that uh, are just un- un- unanticipated. Right. We could do so with NDB, and we did, and got uh, re- some relief. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I think uh, different sets of focus areas, uh, different way of operating, but understanding always no bank can survive uh, by being a giver all the time. It's a business, Uh, but its business focus must be different. And as we uh, say thank you for your time, can we get some clarity, Minister? When you say, I'm not aware what the plans of the seventh administration are, is that you saying I'm not available to serve South Africa after I've May I've never used 20, such words. I would never 20. do so to the ANC. <laughs> no, it's only the ANC who would tell me, go, we don't want you. Fantastic. I, I still have a brain. I still have energy. I know I turned 70 last year, but uh, I still have a brain and energy. <laughs> okay. And we hope to be seeing more of Dr. Naledi Grace Pandal, South Africa's Minister of International Relations and Cooperation building an inclusive world, making sure South Africa has a part in it and making sure that as the world changes, the peoples of Africa and the diaspora are seen as equal partners. It's been Power Talk for Monday. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za.
or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.